ever had a situation in your life that did not go the way you thought it would? You know, you're like, you have pretty good sense how this is going to play out, and then it happens, and you're like, oh, I was, I was very wrong. So uh, four years ago, my uh, wife finds out she's pregnant, and you know, you can't, like, we have little kids at that time. You can't tell little kids anything, because they tell everybody. If it's, if it's supposed to be a secret, you can't tell them until you're fine with everyone knowing. Because you can't be like, hey, well, we have new, mommy's pregnant, but don't tell anybody, you know, until like for, for like five or six more weeks. They're like, okay. And then they'll walk out the door and be like, mommy's pregnant. Time finally comes. Or we're going we're gonna to tell our kids. We have three kids. Our oldest uh, had just had a baseball game and he was tired. You know, we could see that he's tired. And our, our younger two are, were just kind of in a silly mood. But my wife was really excited. It's like, no, we're going to do this. Like, I'm going to video their reaction. They're going to be so excited. This is going to be amazing. Yeah, you feel where this is headed. So we bring him up to the, this room in our house that we had just moved into, and she's explaining this. We're going to have a, someone new live here. This is going to be the baby's room because mommy's pregnant. And our oldest just gets this look on his face. just like, oh, 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 oh. And he just lays down. And we're like, oh, that, that's not going, maybe the, girls will, maybe the girls will redeem this moment. And the girls are just like, okay, why are you filming? What are you filming? What's the filming for? Why are they filming? Can I see the film? Oh, can I see, can you take a picture of us? We're like, no, no, remember the baby. Like, but can I see a picture? I'd like to see, but can I take a picture? Can I take a picture of her? Can we see pictures of what's going on? Yeah, that was, it was not a great moment for us. We're like, okay, let's go get lunch. Thanks. For, you know, it's like, you can't blame you. You can't be like, thanks for ruining this. You, you know, because you're two, that feels unfair. That did not go the way we thought it would go at all. And we're going to look at a story this morning that went very differently than the people involved thought it would go. As we continue our series, What Jesus Started. What Jesus Started. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to John chapter 8. We're going to look at John chapter 8 this morning. Look at this. It's a great little story as we find out more about what Jesus started. John chapter 8 actually starts in the last verse of chapter 7. It says, Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is a powerful story because it connects with the framework that Charles had mentioned several weeks ago that 
that Jesus and his message and his mission starts with the insiders, starts with John the Baptist, then moves to his family and his mother, but it, it moves to people further and further on the outside, further and further on the fringes of this culture, of this society, people who are less and less likely to hear it. And we get today to a woman literally caught in sin, like literally caught in the act of sin. And yet Jesus' message is, is still moving towards her. All right, now there's something we got to address up front, all right? If you're a Bible nerd like me, your moment has come. If you're not, check your phone for 90 seconds and then come back. So you might notice in your Bible that this passage looks a little bit different. For some of you, it's italicized. For some of you, it has brackets around it. For some of you, uh, it might have a note before or afterwards. For some of you, you just might not even have these verses there. And there's a reason for that. Scholars are pretty much in agreement that this was not, this story was not original to John's original gospel, all right? Now, before there's a gasp and people are like, <gasps> it's still the Bible, it's still the Bible, right? There's a long sort of track record of provenance, and even some really scholars have really fleshed out some really good reasons for why this story may not have been talked about in the same way. So while John probably didn't write this, that doesn't mean it's not Scripture, right? This was put here for specific reasons, one is it fits with the theme of judgment, that Jesus picks up this theme later on and it's addressed in, in, in the, later on in the chapter. And two, it helps us understand the, the narrative of John, of Jesus' mission progressing to less and less likely people. And really, it helps us understand why, we'll talk about this later, why G, the chapter ends with people super upset with Jesus. Because if you took this out, it'd be like, well, what happened here? All right, so this is still scripture. This is still divinely inspired. This is still a true account that happened with Jesus. That's what I believe, a true account of Jesus interacting with these people. All right, just because John didn't write it doesn't mean it's not true, but that's why it looks a little bit different in your Bible. All right, we good? Nobody's left, so it seems like we're just positive. Okay? So we're going to need to get into the weeds of Old Testament law so we can better understand this passage, right? We're going to have to get some context. We're going to have to get into the weeds of some stuff. This is about to become an episode of Law and Order, Second Temple Period. We gotta dive into this a little bit. And the first thing is this. The Old Testament does talk about the penalty for people caught in adultery. So the teachers of the law show up with this woman who they've caught in the act. In Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 22, it does talk about the penalty. The adult people caught in that act are to be put to death. And Deuteronomy in particular talks about the method being stoning, which is a brutal way to be killed. I mean, just a brutal death. So what they're saying is accurate. And so they're trying to sort of put Jesus in this position of what's he going to do. So that's a real thing. But it's worth noting that the law had very specific expectations for how this charge could be made. Right? You couldn't just willy-nilly make it. You couldn't just say, like, I, I caught them with no proof. And so it required two witnesses Two witnesses who basically like saw the thing happen. It's like no really artful way to say that. It's like two witnesses who basically saw it. They had to see specific actions that could not be mistaken for anything else. And the witnesses had to see it at the same time in the same location so that their testimonies were exactly the same. So there's a protective nature to this, right? You couldn't just randomly accuse someone. You had to have multiple witnesses who saw the same exact thing and it couldn't be mistaken for anything else. That's a very, very high bar. A very high bar to the point where this, the execution of this judgment rarely happened. Rarely happened. 
So what's Jesus going to do? What's Jesus going to do? We're going to look at two ways Jesus interacts with the people in this story. And the first is this, that Jesus confronts corruption. Jesus confronts corruption. All right, and when I say corruption, I don't just mean corruption in the political system or corruption in the religious system, but corruption in the hearts and minds of people, corruption in the souls of humanity. Jesus confronts corruption. Because what do the Pharisees and the teachers of the law do here? They're trying to trap Jesus. And we don't even have to guess if that's what's happening. Like sometimes we need to infer from what scripture says, we can take context. It literally says they were using this question as a trap. It's a trap. They're trying to trap him. And so they bring Jesus what they feel like is an unwinnable situation for this reason. If Jesus wants to show her mercy, which is kind of what he's been known for, then Jesus is in direct violation of the Mosaic law. And now they have the basis to accuse him of blaspheming against God, of violating God's law. But if Jesus, so it's, it's, that's if he like shows mercy like they know he might do, right? But if he upholds the law, then in the eyes of his followers around him, he's participating in this system, right? The, the people that want him to show mercy, they're hoping his followers will turn on him when he doesn't do this and potentially even get him in trouble with the Roman government for seeking to take sort of the death penalty into, into their hands. They're trying to trap him here. There's several stories like this in the Bible. Several stories where Jesus is confronted and people are trying to trap him. And the thing is, spoiler alert, it never works. Like at this point, we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of kind of history to look at this. And we can just look at this and go, oh, that's adorable. You think you're going to get him. That's great. It's not going to go the way you want. It's not. It's like, I wish they had checked with us. Like, no, find another thing. This is not going to work out well for you. But they're trying to, to embarrass him. So what they do is they catch this woman in the act, and they bring her in, in the public square. They bring her to the temple courts, and they're, they're trying to humiliate her. Because they could pull Jesus off to the side and ask this question. This was an honest question. They could pull, her, pull him off to the side. They could have him meet them somewhere. They could do this in private. But they are trying to humiliate her. They are taking advantage of her. And there's another little detail here that lets us know the state of their hearts. They're trying to use this Old Testament law to trap Jesus, but they're not even using it accurately. Because the law says that the man and the woman should face stoning. I don't see any man here. Now, whether they had a deal with this guy or whether they just excused his behavior, we don't know. But what we do know is they did not bring the man. They just brought the woman. They are choosing to take God's law and apply it as they see fit, humiliating this woman publicly, taking advantage of her. And they bring her to Jesus. Now, it's worth us remembering these guys are not comic book villains. Sometimes it's easy for us to think that, right? Like they're not twirling their mustaches while tying up damsels on the railroad tracks waiting for the train to come. Okay, well, the guys in this story kind of are like that. They kind of are doing that with a, a, a damsel. But still, these are, right, these are holy and devout men that are seeking to follow God that are so upset by the teachings of Jesus that they feel like are contradicting 
Torah that are contradicting God's law, that they need to do something. They need to intervene, that the ends justify the means for them here. Folks, this is what misguided religion looks like. This is what misguided religion looks like. When the ends justify the means, when we're more concerned about the morality of others than than the state of our own hearts, this is what happens when you focus on the methods of faith more than the object of faith. They were so fixated on the law, and by doing so, they took their eyes off the God of the law. Jesus references this idea in Matthew 23, 23, when he says, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites!' You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In their mind, perverting the law that that they seek, that they sort of purport to seek to uphold is justified if it's gonna take care of Jesus, who's a threat. It doesn't matter who gets hurt. It doesn't matter what happens. This story makes me uncomfortable because I see myself in this story. I mean, there's some ways that I see myself in this, right? That I'm like the Pharisees. I haven't dragged any, I haven't like spied on someone committing adultery and dragged them in, that would be super weird. But instead of following God the way he is to be followed, I often follow God the way I want to follow him. I follow God the way that is convenient for me. I have my worldview set. I have kind of my agenda built. And then I follow God in a way that fits that rather than than asking God to shape everything. We can focus on the things that we feel like are, are the most important things instead of the things that God feels are the most important things. We add our own scorecard into the mix. You know, these things are worse than those things, and, and, and those things are, are worse than these other things. Like, we begin to rank things in our mind, and the reality is when we do that, the things that we think are worse are almost always the things that we don't struggle with. And the things that we think are slightly less bad are almost always the things that we do. We look to rationalize and kind of build a case on our behalf. We insert ourselves into the story and say, yeah, follow Jesus, but like, you know, this way. We're guilty of picking and choosing what we choose to care about and making God care about the things that we care about most. We're guilty of imposing our worldview on God and instead of allowing God to shape our worldview. In a sense, we try and get Jesus on our side of an argument. We'll weaponize faith against other people. But Jesus refuses to be co-opted by any side. Jesus doesn't cave to the pressure from the religious leaders and he doesn't cave to the pressure from the people following him. We need to remember that when it comes to social, political, religious issues, Jesus is not on your side. Jesus invites you to be on his. Jesus invites you to be on his side. If you're rushing out to point out somebody else's sin, you aren't spending enough time looking at your own. You aren't spending enough time digging at at your own heart, understanding your own heart. One writer says it like this, Christ's forgiveness in each of our lives diminishes as we lose touch with the depth of our own sinfulness. Man, that's an ugly truth. Jesus confronts the corruption in our hearts. We see him doing it here. And folks, the gospel the reality of Jesus' message that should never leave us feeling comfortable. 
It should never leave us feeling comfortable. Sometimes that's what we want. We want a comfortable gospel that I can fit into my life, but it should never leave us feeling comfortable because the gospel calls us out of our old life into something new. If we're fitting Jesus into our life how we want him to, then we don't fully understand who Jesus is. I love in this story that they bring this woman and and Jesus, they ask him this question and Jesus says he bends down and starts to write on the ground with his finger. Now we don't know what he's writing. A a common interpretation of this from, from antiquity is that he started listing their sins of the men who were questioning her. I don't think that's true, but man, I want that to be true. Because that's a, that's a pretty good moment. We don't know. Was he writing down some of the, the, the law that pertained to this situation? We don't know what he's writing down. But I, what I love about that moment is these men are there questioning him. There's an aggression to what they're doing. And Jesus kneels down and pays them no mind. And that gets frustrating for them. They kept on questioning. They kept pushing him. And He's not engaging with them on this stuff because Jesus is not threatened by them. Jesus is not feeling trapped. Jesus isn't buying time. Jesus doesn't have to figure this out because eventually he stands up and he says to them, let any one of you who was without sin throw the first stone against her. No, that's not saying that an accusation can't be made unless the person doing it is blameless and sinless. That's not what it's saying at all. That's not what it's saying. It's referencing, again, Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 13 and 17 that say that those who witness a crime and submit an accusation must be the first to participate in the execution of the sentence. What he's saying to them is, all right, if you're blameless in this, if this is true, fulfill the sentence according to the law. It is the most absolutely perfect answer. That's a mic drop moment if mics existed 2,000 years ago. I mean, that is an amazing moment because you see what what happens. The religious leaders who were assembled there begin to go away one at a time. And the the language here is like as a progression, as sort of a a line of people leave, as they begin to realize what happened. It starts with the older ones. They left first. And you can imagine it's because they understood what Jesus was saying first. And they begin to leave. Because again, Jesus is confronting the corruption in their hearts. Jesus challenges the insider here. He challenges the insider. But there's more to this story because he goes on that Jesus extends compassion. Jesus extends compassion. How does he do that? Look at the way he treated this woman. He could easily have condemned her. I mean, that was true. She was caught in the act. It is a true statement. No one in this account disputes the truthfulness of the accusation. You notice that nobody at any point says, well, that's not true. She doesn't try and say that's not true. But Jesus meets her in this moment. She's been humiliated, she's been shamed, and the reality of this situation is this stigma will carry with her, and she will likely be pushed to the fringes of this culture, fringes of this society. Imagine your moment of deepest shame, exposed publicly, used as a tool for someone else's agenda. She is raw and vulnerable, and yet Jesus meets her in that moment. Jesus extended compassion to a victim to an object of exploitation, to a sinner. 
and he refuses to condemn her. He asks her, where are they? And I love that question because he knows where they are. He's not like genuinely asking like, wait, where'd everybody go? I thought we were doing something here. He's letting that moment hang. Where, where, did, where, where are they? Is there anyone here left to condemn you? She says, no one. And he says, then neither do I. And his refusal to condemn reveals more about who he is, that, that frankly, that he has the authority to not condemn. Jesus shows mercy to her here, mercy to an outsider, not by excusing what she's done, but by replacing her with himself. And what I mean by that is this chapter begins with this woman being brought to be stoned to death. And the chapter ends with Jesus being threatened to be stoned to death. That Jesus puts himself in her place, that he sort of takes her role as the object of scorn from these religious leaders, that they leave and forget. And now they leave angry with Jesus, embarrassed by Jesus and not this woman. What Jesus does here is incredibly significant. Because saying that neither do I condemn you is not just a legal statement. He's not just saying then I, don't, I will not stone you to death either. But it's, it's a theological one as well. He's not excusing her sin. He's not saying she's innocent. He's not saying this doesn't matter. He's not pretending this isn't real. He's extending compassion and offering forgiveness. He's offering forgiveness. Unwarranted, unmerited forgiveness. And he's pointing forward to the forever forgiveness that he would win through his coming death and resurrection. Jesus extends her an invitation here, and we don't know if she RSVPs or not. We don't know what they talk about. We don't know the interaction they have. But what we know is that he moves towards her. Jesus is seen as a threat to the establishment. He upsets the expected order of things. And here, when we talk about what Jesus started, we see his mission of mercy, compassion, and redemption extended further in this culture to those who are further and further away from God. We see God's heart for the lost. We see God's heart for the marginalized. We see God's heart for those who have been taken advantage of. We see the, God's heart for the broken. We see God's heart for the sinner. Jesus cares for the outsider. He cares for the outsider, and he shows radical compassion here. Radical compassion. A couple years into our marriage, Bethany and I uh, needed a new car. Her car was just, like, it was costing money every time we looked at it, and we needed a new car. And the church we were at had something called in these network classifieds, just kind of like an internal church classified thing, and someone had a Mercury Mountaineer listed for $600, and we're like, that's right about in our budget right there. Uh, we were both on staff at a church, and we both made nothing, and nothing plus nothing meant like, okay, we can buy food. And so we're like, sick, well, we can do $600. And we, so we called, and it seemed to be well-maintained, and, we, and we, we didn't realize before we called that we kind of knew the people that we were calling. And, and so we called them, and we're asking about the car, you know, what's the condition, what's it like? We come check it out. And we're like, you know, so like, just would a check be fine, or would you like $600 cash? And they're like, oh, gosh, no, sorry. That's $6,000. Yeah. And we're like, that makes more sense. That, that, that makes more sense. Yeah, we, we do not have that money. So sorry to bother you. This has been a delightful interaction, and uh, we will bid you adieu and see you on your way. And we get a call uh, a, a later, like a little bit later in the day. 
and it's this couple calling us back. And they said, we talked, and we would like to sell you the car for, uh, for $600 with the condition that you pay us only $200 and you set the rest of the money aside for oil changes and things like that so you can do maintenance on the car. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, am I getting punked? Like, who is this? I think we even asked, we're like, why would you do this? They didn't owe us anything. I mean, we couldn't afford it. It was pretty obvious we couldn't afford it. It was pretty obvious we couldn't even come close. We couldn't make a long distance phone call from the amount of money we had to the amount of money they needed. That's a lot of money. They showed radical compassion on us, not because we had done anything, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, but because they chose to. And that's what Jesus does here. She hasn't earned anything. And while his heart goes out to the way that she has been taken advantage of and embarrassed and humiliated and shamed, that's not enough for him to overlook the weight of sin. And yet he moves towards her anyway because that's who he is. We see the beauty of the gospel message here laid out, the good news about Jesus, because first, the woman is found guilty. And there is no doubt about her guilt. Second, Jesus extends compassion, refusing to condemn her and offering forgiveness. And then only third, does Jesus call her to live a new life, to leave her old life behind and live a new life. She has not earned it. It's not go, take care of what you've done, repent, confess, come back, and then maybe we'll talk. He says, I do this for you because of who I am, not because of who you are. I do this for you because you need it and I can. I do this for you because I love you and I love my father and I am obedient to his will. Compassion was extended before she had even made any effort to live a life that deserved it. That's the reality of the gospel. And that's why what the Pharisees did, what the teachers of the law did is such a problem because it should be the insiders that best understand the lavish way that God has given us his grace and mercy and love. We should best understand what that's like. We should be the first to be gracious. We should be the first to forgive. We should be the first to bear with one another. We should be the first to encourage. We should be the first to turn the other cheek. Because that's the community of faith we have been called to be. That is the example that Christ has set before us. That is the example that his spirit enables and empowers in us. She is called to leave behind her life of sin only after Jesus has moved towards her. And that is incredibly good news because we too are caught in the act. We too are guilty, without question. We too have been trapped by an enemy who wants to see us destroyed. We too face certain death for what we've done with no hope of escape. But we too come face to face with Jesus with God in the flesh who steps into our story, spares us from condemnation, takes our place, makes our enemy his enemy, and we too are called out of our old life into a new life, a better life, a richer life, a whole life, a forever life. What I love is that Jesus brings the outsider in by him, the ultimate insider, going out to them. He meets her where she is. 
The gospel should never leave us feeling comfortable, ever. We should always feel a little uncomfortable because we are called out of our old life into our new life. We are called to reorient our life around the God who knows us and loves us and cares about us more than we can imagine. We are called to allow him to shape our worldview and our experience and to set everything aside as secondary to him. The gospel is not just hope for the woman here. It's challenge and correction for the religious leaders too. The gospel never becomes something solely meant for someone else. We never outgrow it. We never outmature our need for Jesus. The gospel is meant for each of us so that we might be transformed by it, renewed by it, strengthened by it, satisfied by it. The teacher and the Pharisees of the law in this story, they were defined by the law. The woman here was defined by her actions and her sin. Jesus says, be defined by me. But where do you find your hope? Jesus says, find it in me here. And we can see that. I think if we're honest, we can identify in some way with the religious leaders. If, if you're honest with yourself. Where are you so focused on your worldview, on your understanding of God, on your preferences and passions that you rush to condemn others while excusing yourself? I know that's an uncomfortable question, folks. It's uncomfortable for me too. But we are allowed to ask ourselves that question because even finding a terrible answer on the other side of it does not define us. We are defined by the gospel, by the love of Jesus. We're defined by what he has won for us. It gives us the freedom to ask ourselves hard questions. Maybe you identify with the woman in some way. Maybe you identify with the woman in some way too. Maybe there's sin in your life that you feel like defines you. Maybe there's brokenness and shame that you feel like you can't escape. Maybe there's pain and embarrassment that feels overwhelming. Maybe your past seems like just too much for God to forgive. What we see in this story is that's just not true. That just like to this woman, Jesus extends compassion and mercy and love and, and, and forgiveness to you. Hope is knowable through Jesus. And I share with you the same words that Jesus says to this woman, go and sin no more. Not to earn God's love, but because you already are. God loves you in your worst moments. I want you to bow your heads with me as we close. I want you to, to let that sink in in your hearts. Where are you like the Pharisees? Where have you allowed your preferences, your passions, your, your worldview to shape the way you interact with others? Where do you need to turn your head and walk away like the Pharisees did in understanding? What do you need to confess before God? What do you need to confess even here this morning? What do you need to submit to him? What do you need to lay down at his feet? Where do you need to turn from your sin and go and sin no more? Father God, we thank you for stories of hope like this. We love hope. Hope is a good thing, but we also thank you for, the, for stories like this that show correction, that show the way that you confront the corruption in our hearts. 
Just the worst thing we could do, Lord, is know Jesus and just get comfortable, Lord. Would you make us uncomfortable? Would you unsettle us so that we might continually seek after you, so that we might continually look to see your grace and truth made manifest in our lives, that we would orient ourselves around you? Father, there have been prayers of confession that have happened this morning. There are things that have been surrendered. I ask that you would not only... We claim the promise that you will take those things, but Lord, we also ask that you would speak hope into the void that those things will leave. We thank you that you are a good and mighty and powerful and loving and near God who cares about us deeply. We thank you that you have moved towards us through your son before we could ever even ask you to. We praise you for who you are and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 